Now, the title of our study is, Are We There Yet? Let me see by a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard your children or grandchildren say, uh, are we there yet? How many of you, when you were children, ever said, are we there yet? Now, bear with me, because before we get into our study, I want to take a few minutes to deal with a couple of uh, issues. As we go through the story, my guess is you've been troubled by maybe a couple of things. One, as we get into this part of the story, you're going to see God's, what seems to be harsh judgment on the children of Israel when they do wrong and when they uh, rebel. And remember, we've talked about the lower story from our perspective, where we live, that things get confusing, and the upper story from God's purpose, where he has his biggest purpose, bigger purposes in mind. And so from the lower story, it just seems like when God punishes the Israelites, he's just being mean. But from God's perspective, it's discipline. He's disciplining his children for their own good. I mean, whenever you discipline a five-year-old, I doubt the five-year-old is thinking to them himself or herself, I'm so glad my parents have my best interests at heart. I'm so glad they're doing this so I can be a better adult. No, you just seem mean to them as parents. And yet you know from your perspective you are creating an adult. And I like to think that in the Old Testament, God deals with humanity like their children. That is direct cause and effect. You obey me, I'll bless your crops. You don't obey me, uh, in tangible ways my judgment will fall on you. But in the New Testament, he treats us like adult children. That is, as we saw last Sunday, uh, Jesus said, I want to write their commands on your heart. Uh, that is, you love God, you love other people, and the, the commandments will fall into place. If you do that, we have God's laws written on our hearts. My son, John, 31-year-old, right here on the front row, my oldest son, if I still had to spank John at age 31, that wouldn't work very well. As a matter of fact, he would probably spank me in return. I couldn't take him. And what a, what a terrible thing that would be if I had to cause him to do the right thing by force. That's called prison is what it's called. Prison is basically tangible discipline for adults. And yet, what do we, what do we hope as parents? That, that we've written those principles on his heart, and now he is good simply because God's laws are on his heart, and he uh, wants to do good rather than being forced to do so. And the same thing is true with God. Now, the second thing that may trouble you as you read through this particular part of the story is uh, violence in the Old Testament and Old Testament warfare. And there's a couple of resources. If this is a struggle for you or somebody in your oikos, there may be somebody in your oikos, and I'm telling you, uh, because of the way the atheists have written their books and phrased the debate, a major stumbling block to them coming to Christ might just be something that's like Old Testament warfare. And so there's a book, it's listed there at the end of your study outline. I'd recommend that book to you. It's a tremendous book. Uh, also, uh, in our sermon video archives from 2010, I preached a whole message on this as part of the uh, You Ask For It series that we did on different subjects that you ask about. And so 2010 sermon video archives, you can go to our website and find that there from 2010. And uh, that would be a resource for you or your friends or that book that's listed at the end. But let me just do kind of a quick overview of the subject of Old Testament warfare. First of all, you've always got to put these things in the context context of what was going on in the world at, at that time. And whenever you do that with any subject, you find that what we find in God's word is supernatural. 
It is supernatural what God revealed to people 3,500 years ago compared to the landscape around them. It's absolutely amazing. It's another piece of evidence that God's fingerprints are on this book. It is no ordinary book. It is supernaturally given by God. Let me give you an example. Sennacherib, king of the Assyrians, what is today the nation of Iraq, from 700 B.C. There was this whole concept of total war, uh, a culture of violence, uh, that, that was alive back then. I can't imagine a culture having a culture of violence. And uh, you, can you imagine you know, people having movies that glorify violence and that kind of thing? What terrible people. I'm being facetious right now with the Assyrians. But here's a quote from Sennacherib. I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their previous lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I make the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. My prancing steeds, harnessed for my riding, plunged into the streams of their blood as into a river. The wheels of my war chariot, which brings low the wicked and the evil, were bespattered with blood and filth. With the bodies of their warriors, I filled the plain like grass. Their, I'm not going to use this word in church, their private parts I cut off and tore out their privates like the seeds of cucumbers. Wouldn't you love to have him as a neighbor? And uh, that's who the Israelites had as their neighbor, were the Assyrians. And so there was this whole culture of glorifying violence uh, that uh, surrounded them. Now, in contrast to that, let me read from Deuteronomy chapter 20. And, and this is just uh, amazing when you read it. In the context of Sennacherib and others like him, this whole culture of all total war, wipe out your enemies, glory in the violence of cutting your enemies to shreds. Now in the midst of that, Deuteronomy 20 is the main passage governing warfare in the Old Testament. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. So they were to depend not on their military might, but instead they were supposed to depend on God. When you are about to go into battle, the priest, so the first person before they go into battle, is the pastor preaches a sermon. That's what happens right before they go to battle. The priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, hear Israel, today you're going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be panicked or terrified by them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you victory. The officers then shall say to the army, so the pastor preaches a sermon, depend on God, not your military might. Then the officers say to the army, has anyone built a new house and not yet begun to live in it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may begin to live in it. You guys all go home. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may enjoy it. This is a volunteer army. They had no volunteer armies back then. Uh, our army is now volunteer, but that's only been within, what, the last two or three decades that we've had a volunteer army. This was unheard of in the time. This was a volunteer army. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home, or he may die in battle, and someone else marry her. Then the officer shall add, is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home, so that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened too. When the officers have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over the 25 people that are left after all of this. Okay, this is a volunteer army, unheard of at the time. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subjected to forced labor and shall work for you. 
If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. So it's against combatants, not involving non-combatants. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. And you may use the plunder the Lord gives you from your enemies. Skipping down to verse 19. When you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an ax to them because you can eat their fruit. It's environmentally sensitive as well. Do not cut them down. Are the trees people that you should besiege them? However, you may cut down trees that you know are not fruit trees and use them to build siege works until the city at war with you falls. This is unheard of for the time. Let me give you a summary from Preston Sprinkle's book uh, that I just recommended uh, called Fight. Let's sum up the main points of this passage. First, God, not military might, determines the victory. Secondly, Israel's army is made up of volunteers at the time of battle. In other words, there isn't to be a professional standing army. If anyone has recently built a house, planted a vineyard, betrothed a wife, or is simply fearful and faint-hearted, he doesn't have to go to war. Third, if the Israelites do go to war, they're to first offer peace to the city before they fight against it. Fourth, only if the city rejects peace is Israel sanctioned to go to war. Fifth, non-combatants are not to be killed during war. Lastly, even the fruit trees aren't to be destroyed. Talk about limited objectives. Now, if you were reading in your own Bible, you'll see that I skipped a few verses, and it says very clearly, this is the guidelines for a nation far from you. But for the nation of Canaan, it was different. Because Canaan had been warned for 430 years to turn to God, and they had not done so. And they were an utterly decadent society. I mean, you know, atheist writers like Richard Dawkins will make you think that there are these innocent peasants and Israel comes in and does genocide. Absolutely untrue. This was a culture sold out to satanic worship. They would sacrifice their own children in their worship. They were utterly decadent. They'd been warned for 430 years. And even then... They were given a chance to repent, and groups like the Gibeonites that you read about in the book of Joshua, Rahab and her family, when they repented, even in the face of the Israelite army, after a 430 years of resisting God, if they repented, their lives were spared as well. And so you need to put these into the context in which we find them as you go through the story and consider those other considerations as you get into it. Now, let's go to our study. Israel's three complaints to Moses. And we're going to see as they wander through the wilderness uh, what a whining, uh, complaining group of children the children of Israel were. Some Bible scholars have referred to it, it's like Moses was herding cats in the wilderness for 40 years herding cats. That for Moses, it was, it was kind of like this. Let's watch this. Now there are three types of complaints that are talked about here. And, you know, something to take very seriously, we tend to think complaining is like one of those nickel and dime sins, like gossip or other things. Oh, God's not that uptight about it. Do you know that God hates complaining? Because complaining is the opposite of thankfulness. God loves thankfulness. He hates complaining. And we'll see the different forms that it took here. Israel complains about the general hardships of the trip. Now, the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Now, God in his mercy 
doesn't bring his judgment on them. He kind of does a a warning shot. The Hebrew word that's used here is like lightning strikes around the outskirt of the camp. It was kind of a warning shot, like, hey, be careful. This makes me angry. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So that place was called Tabera, which in the Hebrew means burning, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. Now, the people complained about their hardships. Uh, How many of you have found, you don't have to raise your hand, that in some ways your life got easier when you chose to follow Christ? You weren't enslaved in Egypt anymore. But in some way, it got harder. And there are hardships in the wilderness on the way to heaven the promised land. Now, maybe Moses made the mistake that many pastors, myself included, have made in this area. Maybe he so talked to them and emphasized the promised land that he didn't warn them about the hardships that would be in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Many of us pastors do the same thing. We talk so much about the benefits of following Christ that we don't sometimes warn people that there are hardships along the way. It is wonderful to be freed from the slavery of Egypt. It is wonderful to have the hope of the promised land. But in the wilderness, on the way, there will be hardships. Does anybody want to say amen to that? It's going to be hard sometimes. It's going to be difficult. All right. And, and, and when we don't warn people adequately, sometimes they become disillusioned when we share Christ with somebody and don't talk about the fact that how it's really going to be. Okay, uh, illustration I've used before, but I think it's so powerful, I'd like to use it again, is like, imagine you're going to take a nonstop flight from Los Angeles to New York City this afternoon. And I tell you, hey, you know what will make your flight fun and more enjoyable and more pleasurable? Here's a parachute. And wear this parachute the whole time, and you're going to have more of a fun trip. And so you get the parachute on, and you're sitting there, and people are kind of laughing at you, or they're looking at you. You're getting a backache from the, from the parachute. You're kind of hot and sweaty. So after a while, you say, forget that. Glenn sold me a false bill of goods, and so you take the parachute off. Now, compare that to your attitude. If I say to you, you're going to take a nonstop flight from Los Angeles to New York, and here's a parachute, and you need to hang on to that for dear life because partway through that flight, your plane is going to crash. And the only people that are going to survive are those that have parachutes. You know what will happen? You won't take it off. You'll cling to it for dear life. You don't care if people make fun of you. You don't care if it's uncomfortable. You don't care if you're hot and sweaty. It doesn't matter. This is the only thing that spares your life and gets you to the promised land. And that's the way it is with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may be hard sometimes. It may be difficult. There may be hardships involved. People may look at you funny. People may make fun of you. But you cling to the cross. You cling to Jesus for dear life. Why? Because there's the hope of the promised land at the end. And and so they lost perspective on that. And they complained in the midst of their hardships. Then Israel complains about the food. And now God promised to meet our needs, but he never promised to meet our greeds. And manna provided for their needs, but it got boring. Maybe it was interesting the first year, but after 40 years eating this stuff, it got old. And so he, he met their needs through manna, but he didn't give them variety. He didn't meet their greeds. It says in verse four, the rabble with them began to crave other food. Now this, in the Hebrew, this word translated rabble, very interesting word. Sometimes it's translated riffraff, literally, the rabble, the riffraff. It means the Egyptians, the non-Israelites that left Egypt with them. They jumped on the bandwagon just because they didn't want to experience the plagues. They had no relationship with God but they just wanted to get out of Egypt because of the plagues, and they thought they'd jump on the bandwagon with Israel. 
And they, because they didn't have a relationship with God, they were the first to begin to complain. Now, here's the dangerous thing about complaining. It's contagious. you got to watch out with complaining. You know, so many times we coddle complainers. We, uh, you know, we kind of tiptoe around them. And I tell you, it's dangerous because complainers will infect a group of people. Complaining is contagious. Anybody want to say amen to that? If you're around complaining, even if initially that was not your perspective, you will begin to find a non-grateful complaining spirit grow in your heart as well. And so the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Are you kidding me? The reason the food was no cost is because you were slaves. You didn't have any food. Yes, they provide enough food for you to barely survive when you're a slave so you can do the work for them. Now, what's interesting is for the rabble, Egyptians, they probably had accessibility to this kind of food. But that's how irrational it gets. It was somewhat rational for the rabble, but it was not rational for Israel because they had been the ones enslaved in Egypt. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetites. We never see anything but this manna. Just like the choir just sang in such a beautiful way going into this study. The enemy of faith is forgetfulness. Remember the old hymn? Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Why does it surprise us? Because we forget, don't we? We forget over time what the Lord has done, and we enter into complaining, and we have a lack of gratitude. And then thirdly, the third type of complaining is Miriam and Aaron complain about Moses being the leader. Now, this is when you're jealous of other people and how God uses them compared to how God uses you. And, you know, that's why that that video clip inspires me so much. When you're a part of a big, great movement, you're proud of every role that you had. You, You feel like every role is important. And some may seem more visible, some may seem more glamorous, but you know, you know, you talk to people that were involved in World War II. And my dad, he didn't have any, you know, fabulous, you know, charging at Normandy or anything like that. He was cutting trees for the Burma Road in Burma, a road that was never used because they never ended up attacking uh, through that particular road. The war got over before that. And yet he was so proud of his service. And you know, when you're part of a big cause, if you're a private, if you're a captain, if you're a major, if you're a general, every, you, you feel like I was part of something bigger than myself. There's no need to be jealous of anybody else because your role is essential. I think when you get to heaven, you will be amazed at how critical your piece in God's story really was. And I think, you know what? I think we're going to grieve a little bit because we're going to say, oh, well, if I had known it was that important, I would have given it more effort. Every piece of it is so incredibly important. Um, I was talking to Jim Milhan this past week, who loves, uh, very expert on Civil War stuff. And he says, whenever he visits Little Round Top on the Gettysburg battlefield, he always weeps. Because on that spot, a handful, maybe 60 or 70 men or something like that, at one point in that battle, were the only thing between the Southern Army, the Confederate Army, and Washington, D.C., was this little band of men. And when they got up that morning, they didn't realize they were going to be in something so epic that the whole future of our country was going to hinge 
on their faithfulness to hold that piece of ground. And when you get up every morning, you may think your little piece of oikos, your little piece of ground, does it really matter that much? You know, is it that much a big deal? I mean, I'm not a general like Billy Graham. I'm just serving in this little spot. And I'm telling you, there's no need to be jealous or have feelings of inferiority. Everything is essential. Every line in God's story, every word, every period over an eye, every jot and tittle, as Jesus would say, absolutely matters. Now, isn't it interesting? Who you tend to get jealous of is not somebody way beyond you. It's always somebody just ahead of you. I mean, nobody gets, who gets jealous of Bill Gates with all his money? You get jealous of the person who has a little nicer car than you little nicer house than you, earns a little more money than you, has one more step above you at work. And here the complainers are Miriam and Aaron. Now they're the brother and sister of Moses, because that could explain some of it right there. But Moses is number one in Israel. Aaron the high priest is number two. And Miriam as a prophetess is number three. So if you're number two and number two, three, the only one to get jealous of is number one, right? I mean, you're just the one right above you. So Miriam and Aaron begin to talk against Moses. Now, the Hebrew here is in the feminine, and Miriam's name is listed first. So we believe she was actually the leader in this. That's why the judgment, if you read the remainder of the story, is harder on her than on Aaron and why it tends to fall on her. So Miriam and Aaron begin to talk against Moses. Now, this is interesting. Just a little bit of an aside. Uh, Because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Do you know this is the only time in the Bible interracial marriage is ever mentioned? And the person that criticizes it ends up being judged and punished by God. So just just a note to self. The only time it's ever mentioned and the person criticizing it, mainly Miriam here, is the one that ends up uh, being judged by God for her criticism of it. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they ask? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. You You know one of the great traits for a leader is humility. Humility makes a great leader. And Moses is considered one of the greatest leaders of all time. And he was a humble man. You know what humility means? It means you care more about the cause. You you care more about God's thing being done than you do your personal ego and people's criticism of you. My my daughter Leah uh, gave me this, um, and I, I keep it on my desk. It's my little bobblehead of Abraham Lincoln, okay? And I, she knows I'm a big Lincoln lover, and so I keep it on my desk to remind me of Abraham Lincoln, another great leader who was a, a great man of humility. I mean, when you read stories about him, it was amazing how offensive and insulting people were to him. It was just unbelievable. And yet he overlooked it for the cause. His cause in life was keeping the United States, the Union, together. That, that was his thing, and eradicating slavery. That, that was his thing. And so if somebody could serve that, even if they personally insulted him, he overlooked it for the, for the sake of the greater cause. There's this one story, General McClellan, who was the head of the, um, the Union forces at one time, very insulting to Lincoln. And Lincoln, actually, rather than McClellan coming to the White House to report on the war, Lincoln had to go to him. And he wasn't home one evening, so Lincoln waited in the parlor for him to come home. He comes home later that night, hears that the President of the United States is in his parlor waiting for him, says, tell him I'm too tired, I'll see him in the morning, goes up to bed. Did that to the President of the United States. 
And yet Lincoln overlooked it because at that time he believed that McClellan was the guy to lead them to victory. Eventually he traded him out for Ulysses S. Grant and didn't think he was the guy. But at that point he thought he was the guy. So he's like, you know what? In humility, he overlooked the offense because that person fulfilled the greater thing that God had called him to do. Now Israel takes a dangerous wrong turn at Kadesh Barnea. We'll put the map up there. Kadesh Barnea is right on the edge of the promised land. And so they send in 12 spies to check out the land. All 12 come back and say it's fantastic. But 10 of them say it's fantastic, but it's too much for us to conquer. The people are just too strong for us. We, we can't. There are giants in the land. Now, when you think giants, don't think somebody like 300 feet tall like Jack and the Beanstalk. Think NBA center or NFL lineman. That's what you think of when you think of these giants. They were, they were somewhat taller uh, than the other people and bigger and stronger. And so uh, the 10 say, you know what, we just can't take it. But Joshua and Caleb... Those two said, we, yes, it is, they are strong. It's a wonderful land. It is strong. And yes, with God's help, we can take it. Look at Numbers chapter 13. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Not literally, but it was a phrase meaning it's very prosperous. Israel today is like the central, like the central valley of California. It's, it's kind of the breadbasket for Europe, providing most of the, the fruit uh, provided to the continent of Europe from Israel. And so it was and is today a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large we even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him and said... Now notice how complaining is contagious, but negative thinking is contagious as well. And notice here how they start with something that is true, but they go on to something that is exaggerated and is not true. We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. That's true. Without God's help, they were stronger. They can't do it on their own. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. Stronger than us? True devours those living in it, not true. All the people we saw there are of great size, true. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. So it's true, they are of great size. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, not true. Great size, true. Grasshoppers in our own eyes, not true. And we look the same to them, especially not true. How do they know how they looked to them? Okay, So do you see how negative thinking, um, Satan whispers in our ear, you can't take it. I don't know what your, what your spiritual territory is. God's got some kind of promised land in front of you, something he's called you to do. Or maybe he wants victory in a relationship or, or victory from an addiction. or I, I don't know what it is. And Satan will whisper in your ear, you are a grasshopper. In your own eyes and in the eyes of others, you can't do these, this thing. Remember I gave you the illustration, it's one of my favorites, of elephants 
that huge, humongous elephants are held by a tiny little stake, a little rope and a tiny stake. So how can that be? Well, because when they were baby elephants and much smaller, they pulled against that stake 300 times or 1,000 times. And their little elephant memory kicked in. And even though now they're a humongous element, elephant who could easily pull up that stake, they don't do it because somewhere in their childhood, somebody said, you're a grasshopper. And maybe you're here today and somebody in your childhood said, oh, they're not very administrative. They're not very organized. Oh, they, they're, they're not a very good speaker. Oh, they, they can't talk to people one-on-one. You can't talk to people one-on-one about Jesus because you had a couple of bad experiences about it. But, but just somehow in our youth or childhood or maybe even our, our adulthood, uh, somebody stuck a grasshopper stake in the ground. And now we're big elephants that's kind of insulting, isn't it? Okay, you know what I mean? Now we're much bigger elephants than we used to be, you know. And, uh, um, and, and we can pull up that thing. We can take that land. Why not? Why not us? A couple little PSs from the Super Bowl. Remember I told you about the ape that predicted it six straight years? He's done it seven straight years. There he is, Eli the ape. There, there he is. Seven straight years he's predicted the uh, Super Bowl correctly. I'm anxious to see what he's going to do next year. Okay. But uh, on a more serious note, I want to talk about, finish off talking about a couple of wonderful Christian young men that were on the Seattle Seahawks. On fire Christians, wonderful Christian uh, young men. One is Russell Wilson, who's the uh, quarterback uh, for Seattle. And he had a wonderful Christian dad. His dad's in heaven now, but a wonderful dad. And his dad, when he was a kid, always used to say to him, "Um, Russell, why not you? Why not you? Why not us? You've got that promised land in front of you. And he spread this to his teammates, this theory. There's two teams in the Super Bowl. And I know we're not favored, but why not us? Somebody's got to win, right? And that promised land is in front of you. And, And you ask yourself the question, with God's help, why not us? Uh, Why, why not, why not me? Uh, Let me give you another example. Uh, Another wonderful Christian young man named Derek Coleman. He's the first uh, deaf uh, offensive player in NFL history. And, you know, even though he had this disability and he had a grasshopper complex, I'm sure as a child and other people treated him like a grasshopper, he was just bold enough as a follower of Jesus to say, you know what, why why not me? I love that line, but I've been deaf since I was three, so I didn't listen to him. (laughs) Isn't that great? And maybe Satan's whispering in your ear, grasshopper, grasshopper. And, And you whisper back, big fat elephant. I'm a big fat elephant. I can pull up that stake. I can break that addiction. I can see that relationship healed. I, I, I can conquer that spiritual territory. I can do that thing. I can teach Sunday school to fourth graders. I can do that thing. I can be part of the junior high ministry. I, I can serve in that area. I'm going to have Katie and the band come up right now. We're going to close with a song. And Katie's going to sing it and, uh, and then have us join in at the end of it. Um, about seeing the desert, the wilderness that we're in. Seeing it as actually something God can use for his purposes within our life. And I just want to end, and by the way, um, that last passage where it says Moses' farewell speech at Kadesh Barnea, 
Um, I messed that up. <laughs> that is, all the references are right, but it's supposed to be Deuteronomy rather than Numbers. So if you get confused on what that has to do with anything, it doesn't. It's, uh, it's a whole book off. So f- put, no, put Deuteronomy in there in, in your study, and it'll all make sense. But let me just quote, close by reading Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 45 through 47. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 45 through 47. When Moses finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words I've solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. They're not idle words. They are for your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. There's the land. Got to go through wilderness wanderings to get there. But there's the promised land. Let's take that land. Why not us? Why not you? Why not me? Why not us? Go ahead, Katie.